And there you have it. All right, so uh, welcome to RUF. If you haven't been here or haven't been here for a while, the whole point of what we do is that we would help you learn what it means to follow Jesus while you're on campus. We're here for Christians and non-Christians. So whichever of those you see yourself as, you belong here. And uh, what we're going to do is look at Jesus in his word. My name is Willis. I'm the campus pastor. Uh, I love this. I love getting to dig into God's word with you. This has been super fun for me, this whole whole series on Revelation that we've been doing. So thanks for hanging in there with me. If you've been like, this book is weird. It's intense. And I'm so glad that I've been able to do this with y'all. The one thing I really want y'all to know about me, though, is that I'm not a good person. But Jesus loves me, and he loves you. And that changes everything, guys. We come this evening to the end of the book of Revelation. Um, the end of this whole series we started in January. Uh, and Revelation sends us off this week with some clear, direct, purposeful last words. Uh, we, we've kind of come out like we had a chapter where there was like a dragon and a woman giving birth in the sky. It was weird. We had weeks where there was like emerald rainbows and we're like, what is that going on? And this one is a little more straightforward. And it's almost like a summary of like, okay, in case you missed it, in case you spaced out there, or we're just like, what is going on? It just like condenses it down and says, here's what I really want you to take away. Um, famous last words in history. This is, I mean, so classic Emily Dickinson. Who's read Emily Dickinson? Is there some Emily fans out there? A few of you? Okay. Her last words before she dies, I must go in. The fog is rising. It's just like a classic Emily Dickinson novel. Karl Marx says, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who've not yet said enough. It's a little grumpy, whatever. I like this one, it's funny. Okay, so um, this is playwright, he wrote plays named Wilson Meisner. As he lay dying, this priest visits him. And the priest says to him, I'm sure you want to talk to me. And he responds to the priest, why should I talk to you? I've just been talking to your boss. <laughs> I like that. We remember last words because they can feel significant or funny or like they sum up a whole life sometimes. Or they might be random. These last words of Revelation, not random. They're significant. And they sum up really what we're supposed to do with Revelation. So what are we supposed to do with this book that we just spent most of the semester studying? Um, all of the visions and sights and sounds that Jesus showed us, he now sums up what we're supposed to do with them. So here it is. Where are we going to go tonight? The words of the prophecy of this book. What do we do with them? What do we do with the words of the prophecy of this book? Which is like, where I got these two points, if you read this passage, you can see, we should probably like, I'm going to click, click away from that in a second. But if you read it, the two most repeated phrases are the words of the prophecy of this book seven times and behold, I'm coming soon three times. So uh, that's where these two points are from. And we're going to look at basically what do we do with both of those two. So before we do that, let me pray. Father God, um, man, your word is potent. You say in your word that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And uh, my words are not like that. So Jesus, I just ask that you would please work through my humble words and use them by your Holy Spirit to say what you want to say to us and give us ears to hear, soften our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. First point. What do we do with the words of the prophecy of this book? Um, 
So over and over it says, the words of the prophecy of this book, like, take them seriously. So what are the words, what have the words of the prophecy of this book told us? What have they said? Like, just a few things. We've been given, like, visions of heaven itself. We've been given oracles directly from God. We've been given insight into, like, the cosmos, history, our own hearts. Um, we've been given a way to understand, like, a framework for understanding all of history. Uh, we've seen the coming king, and we've been invited into his kingdom. And if you, like, if you missed any of those things, like, that's okay. That's the reason to go back and, like, study Revelation on your own. You know, like, go back to it and read it. You know, it's in there. And this, this um, command over and over about the words of the prophecy of this book at the end, it says, take it seriously. Take it seriously. And the passage tells us three ways to take it seriously. So first, trust it, verse 6. Verse 7, keep it. And then verse 10 and 18, 10 and 18 says, don't seal it up and don't add anything. Don't take anything away. So we're going to look at all three of those. So first, verse 6 says, trust the words. And he, the angel, said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And that's talking about the whole book. The, all these visions you've seen. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So why do we trust the words of Revelation? Why are we doing this? Like what point is there in looking at Revelation or reading the Bible every morning or going to church? What's the point? The claim of the Bible is that the Bible is God's very words. Uh, God gave his words, not concepts, not vague ideas, but his words to the prophets, including John. He wrote Revelation. He gave them actual words to write down, which they did. And that's how we got the Bible, right? So 2 Peter 1, 1.21 says, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is saying like about Revelation, but also about the whole Bible. Like What we're claiming here is that these are not just like nice ideas about Jesus. These are not like some people's concept of God. The claim of the Bible itself is that it's like you actually have the direct quotations of the God of the universe. So trust God's word. But that doesn't mean blind faith. Okay. You might hear me saying like, just like cast aside all your doubts and just decide to believe it. But I'm not actually saying that. I know a lot of us here have some doubts or questions. It's actually more like, um, so my daughter Juniper and my son Judah, uh, they love this character that I've invented called Mighty Duck. And uh, they want stories at night. And so I was kind of running out of stories. And so I was like, great, I'm just going to invent like, this whole new world for them. And I invented Mighty Duck. And he's a great and mighty duck. And he does awesome stuff. He's got a, a wife named Darling Duck. He's got a friend named Stealthy Pig and Lovely Pig. Uh, he's got a lot of different characters. It's great. Um, maybe someday. Never mind. Um, <laughs> uh, Mighty Duck's never going to visit large groups. It's not going to happen. But every night at dinner time, without fail, she's like, Daddy, tonight can we have a Mighty Duck? And every night with life, without fail, I say, like, we'll see. Because Mighty Duck is contingent upon behavior in the post-dinner process, right? But, like, she knows Mighty Duck's coming. He always comes. It always happens, right? The reason she asks is not because she doesn't trust. It's that because she longs for and wants this thing, there is still this like element of doubt. And when she comes to me and asks for Mighty Duck, I'm not like, how could you ask that again? I can't believe you're still doubting Mighty Duck. Like, I want her to ask because it shows me that she wants to like, she wants that. She wants to connect with me. And so actually what I'm saying is that your doubt about God's word is an on-ramp to faith. 
God is totally okay with your doubt. He wants you to bring these questions to him. He wants you to wrestle with what's going on. Um, God's word is robust enough. If God's word is actually what the, it says it is, then it can handle your doubts. Right? It can handle your questions, your confusion, your frustrations. If it makes you angry, that's not going to threaten God. Like That's okay. So dig into God's word. right? If, it, if you find it confusing or frustrating, don't just be like, well, that's lame. Everything worthwhile in your life is worth wrestling with, right? So dig into it. Study it for yourself a verse at a time. Read books about the Bible to understand it better. Um, admit it to yourself and to others when you don't like what it says. <laughs> if, you're, if you're in a small group Bible study and you read a verse and you're like, well, that's super offensive. Say that. Just say it. That's okay. Um, trust the Bible. And trust that it is solid enough to stand up to your investigation. Okay, that's what it means to trust the words. But the next thing it says is keep the words. Verse 7. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So the words of Revelation are meant to be kept. What does that mean? The Greek word translated here, keep, is teron. Teron. So if you know Greek, now you know what it says. Uh, but what it means is to guard or to keep watch on. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's actually used for like how the jailers of Paul, when he was in jail, were commanded to like guard him, keep watch on him. So this is, this is promising a blessing to those who reverently, carefully, intentionally both know and live out the words of this book. God doesn't want you to just like see Revelation and be like, hmm. Interesting. He wants you to live it out, to live your life differently in light of what you have seen, what he's revealed in this book. And over and over throughout Revelation, we could sum up like the application of how we're supposed to live is patient endurance. Faithful endurance in the gospel that we've believed, in, uh, in the obedience that he has called us to, in the resistance of temptation, in allegiance to God alone. Faithful endurance. So will you wait, guys, for the return of your Savior? Will you cherish His promise and His word that He's going to return? Will you take Him seriously? Take Him at His word that sin is killing you, but that He wants to give you new life. Keep these words. The final way to take the words of the prophecy of this book seriously, and this is kind of cool, guys. It's pretty direct. It says, don't seal them up, don't add to them, don't take away from them. So seal up means essentially being embarrassed by the words of God either hiding them from yourself or from others for whatever reason. So if there's like parts of the Bible that you're like, I'm just not going to go there, you should go there. <laughs> Don't seal it up. The whole thing's for you. Um, adding to them, it says don't add to them. Adding to them means giving some, some human principle or command or idea the status of Scripture. So like examples would be like um, prohibiting thing the Bible doesn't pro prohibit. Okay, so like, if, you, if you're like, well, a true Christian could never vote for fill in the blank. You're, at, you're putting some other, like, does the Bible tell you don't vote for so-and-so's name? No, it doesn't. So like, you're adding, you're putting something else on the level of Scripture. It says don't do that. Another thing, Christians over 21 should never drink alcohol. I get why there's opinions about that. I'm not saying that it's wise for every Christian over 21 to drink alcohol. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't say that no one over 21 cannot drink alcohol. I'm not sure if I put a double negative in there, but you know what I mean. Um, alternatively, 
elevating theological or ethical issues to a place of like ultimate importance. Like this thing that I care about a lot is the thing that everybody who's a Christian has to care about as much as me. So like, um, for instance, you can't be a Christian if you believe in baptizing babies. Like that's just wrong. You can't do that. Things that Christians disagree over. Or I could never follow a God who disagreed with me about LGBTQ issues, trans issues. Like I could never follow a God who did that. What you're doing is saying that this ethical issue that you care about, for lots of good reasons, is the thing, like, all Scripture stands or falls based on that, right? When actually, Scripture is like this big thing, and if we're going to approach it, like, and actually encounter the God who, you know, if we're in a place of unbelief, we're willing to believe might possibly have written it, we've got to be willing to allow Him to shape us and challenge us and, like, bring our disagreements to Him. You get it. Okay, don't add, don't take away. Don't take away from Scripture. This just means we do this all the time, guys. We do this all the time. Picking and choosing what we're going to believe from the Bible, right? So I'll believe in the perfect life of Jesus, but not the virgin birth. I'll believe in, like, maybe the life of Abraham, but not the creation of the world in six days. I'll believe in the death of Jesus, but not his resurrection from the dead. Maybe, like, I love the, t- the teaching of Jesus on love, like loving your neighbor, but not the part about how like l- lust is actually as bad as adultery. You know, <laughs> If we minimize or take away or ignore these things, we're taking away from Scripture. We're saying, well, that part, don't really need that part. But don't take away w- from it. Wrestle with it. You don't have to like it, but just don't ignore it. Right? Don't pretend that it doesn't exist. And this call to wrestle with God, like wrestle, that word, wrestle with God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. Um, my kids love to wrestle with me, especially my two boys. Juniper will like jump in, but then she'll like get kicked in the mouth or something and be out, you know, tap out. But especially the boys, they love it. And they love to like test their strength against my strength. One thing they like to do is James will like, like, Daddy, squeeze your hand. So I give him my hand, he like squeezes it like, like as hard as he can. And like, it doesn't hurt me, right? Um, but it's, it's a very, like, it's an intimate thing. Like, they want to, like, try to hurt me. They, they want to, like, they do. It's like, when you have kids, you will understand. And it's, and, and I love that, right? Um, there's a limit. When they get older, like, I'll be like, whoa, that actually hurt. Uh, but God wants you to wrestle with him. He, he's not threatened by your jabs or your anger or your confusion. He wants you to really wrestle with him. And this this desire of God who gives us a word that is challenging and that is not easy, and he's inviting us to wrestle with him, it's made more personal, that invitation to wrestle by the promise that like the God who wrote it is actually coming back soon. (laughs) He's going to be here. We'll be able to wrestle in person. So second point, behold, I'm coming soon. What do we do with that? So um, anyone who disbelieves that humans are fundamentally worshipful beings needs to hear this quote from a fan of Taylor Swift in the Atlantic. I confirmed with Anna, um, Taylor's new uh, tour did recently start. I thought it did. It actually did. It was recent. So anyway, hot hot topic news. Here it is. Uh, (laughs) uh, We'll just do it. Uh, This is a quote from the magazine. Taylor Swift is not simply a voice in our ears or an abstract concept to argue over at parties, but a flesh and blood being with a taste for sparkling pajamas and a stamina of a ram. All right. 
all concerts are conjurings, turning the audience idea of a performer into a real thing. But last night's kickoff of Taylor Swift's Ares tour in Glendale, Arizona, heightened the amazement with Houdini Escapes Handcuffs physicality. After years of having their inner lives shaped by Swift's highly mediated virtual output, more than 70,000 individuals can now attest the vibrancy of Taylor Swift the person. Somehow, seeing her up close made her seem more superhuman. <laughs> I love Taylor Swift. I'm like, I'm, I'm all about it. That's great. But what I want you to see is we could sum up Revelation in similar language and say Jesus is not simply a voice in our ears or an abstract concept to argue over at parties, but a flesh and blood being with the humble beauty of a lamb and the deadly power of a lion. After hundreds of years of having our lives shaped by his ineffable influence mediated by the Holy Spirit, more than 144,000 individuals will soon attest to the vibrancy of Jesus Christ, the person. Undoubtedly, seeing him up close will make him seem both more awesomely divine and more accessibly human. Like, we were made to worship. If we can't have Jesus, we're going to worship Taylor Swift. Right? And this is saying the being of all beings, the greatest being in existence, is coming to your town, and you're going to get to see him. He's coming. He's coming soon, is what it says. Behold, I'm coming soon, over and over. You may say, well, he's been gone almost 2,000 years. Can't be that soon, right? But listen to this, verse 10, 11. He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. This may sound like evil and filth is being encouraged, like what's going on there? Uh, it, like be, it would be against the entire witness of Scripture for evil and filth to be encouraged, so we should be like, that's probably not what it is. What else is it? I think what's actually happening, it's like a warning that like from God's perspective on the timeline, it may already be too late for you to turn from your sin. It may, like, it, it may already be too late. It will very soon be too late to change your ways. He's coming soon. On the day Jesus comes back, it'll be too late to give up your gossip. On the day Jesus comes back, it'll be too late to cancel your cheating. On the day Jesus comes back, it'll be too late to stop and put aside your performance mentality and rely on Jesus' redemption alone. It'll be too late. On the day Jesus comes back, it'll be too late to stop hooking up. On the day Jesus comes back, it'll be too late to stop looking at porn. On the day Jesus comes back, it's going to be too late to love your neighbor. On the day Jesus comes back, it'll be too late to share the gospel with that friend that you've been wanting to share the gospel with or like trying to figure out a way. On the day Jesus comes back, it'll be too late to take him seriously. On the day Jesus comes back, it's going to be too late to repent. There's no second chance. It's not like you can see him and then be like, oh, okay, yeah, now I'm good. It says in the God's word, the second coming and then the judgment. That's it. August 24th, 79 AD, southwest coast of Italy. It's actually, we know the time, it's weird. It's noon, city of like 10 to 20,000-ish. People are eating lunch. It's actually happened in history. People are eating lunch. They're just resting, taking their nap, whatever, in the heat of the day. Uh, going about their lives as usual until this giant mountain, Mount Vesuvius, that is above their town, just like blows its top off, erupts. Turns out Mount Vesuvius was actually a volcano. They didn't know that. Everyone in the city of Pompeii died almost instantaneously. First, like noxious gases, then, like tons and tons of ash. What's striking is that the ash that lands, it, like, it preserves the entire place 
when like graphic details so we know like exactly what was going on right as life when they knew it ended people died right where they were like in the fields in the house on the road whatever they were doing they just died right there storerooms with hundreds of gallons of wine and oil were buried to remain untasted for thousands of years we found i didn't find i wasn't there archaeologists found like loaves of bread still in the ovens um the revelation comes to warn you the mountain above your town is about to erupt do you really want to stake your eternal destiny you know the the actions that matter so much the relationships that have eternal impact do you want to stake that on the gamble that like well it's probably a long way off for the evildoer the filthy the moment of his coming would be too soon even if it was a million years distant Millennia would be too short a time to separate them from the inexorable wrath of the God of justice. When it's too late, they'll beg for one moment more, but no moments will be granted. This is like a terrible thing. There's no gloating here. This is not like a good thing. It's just reality. And yet God is good enough, merciful enough to warn us. He doesn't leave without warning. He warns us. So if you're living here tonight, you're in unrepentant sin you can see that in some level, your heart is an enemy of God. There's good news. He's not here yet. Today, he's not here yet. And today, you can repent. That invitation is there for you today. So do it tonight. You can still turn from your sin to the God who loves to forgive sinners. That's the invitation we see in our passage. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right, the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside, the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So listen, this is saying, gather up your robes, the sum of your life, right? Your, your best efforts, your accolades, your resumes get them too, your worst mistakes, your secret sins, the things you're proud of, the things you're ashamed of, your abilities, your hopes and dreams for the future, your plans, your fears and your anxieties, all of it, bring all of it to one place, to the cross of Jesus Christ. He can handle all of it. He's not afraid of any of it. And there, look at your Savior. Look at Jesus. This God who comes to you and reveals himself as the King of the universe who died for you. Compared to him, compared to that picture of somebody who deserved it all and could have kept it but willingly gave it up for people like you and me, all of our impressive stuff is nothing, and none of our shame can stand, can stand against us. Jesus bled so that you could wash your robes. In his blood, the Bible says that they'd be whiter than snow. Nothing else can wash them, nothing else can make them good. His blood does. Revelation 7 said, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, what is that talking? If you're here and you're like, okay, what? What, is that, what does that mean? This is not some sort of like visualization. Like if I just visualize it, it'll happen. It's not like a magical ritual in church that we're talking about. This is very simple. The Bible is actually super simple and clear and direct about like what it takes to have your everything about your life washed clean. It says, look at Jesus as he is presented in the Bible, as he reveals himself to you in revelation throughout the Bible, and believe Believe that he is who he said he is. That he did what he said he did. And that, for that person, he washes us clean. That's it. 
is believe. Believe this guy. If you've already trusted in Jesus, if you're, if you're already trusting him to, uh, to lead you daily out of sin into righteousness, I want you to hear the comfort. Okay, we've heard kind of like the scary part, but there's a comfort here for us guys, for those who are already in Christ. Hear about the comfort of Jesus' imminent return. He's coming for you. He's almost here. He's coming to rescue you. He's coming to heal you. He says he's coming to wipe every tear from your eye. Whatever you've got going on right now, the worries, the stress, the fear, like, it's going to be handled. And whatever thing you're looking for, I'm looking forward to stuff. Whatever thing you're looking forward to, when Jesus comes back, you're going to be like, this is worth it. This is better. He's coming to banish sin and sadness, sickness, death forever. The fully God, fully human, King of all things, is coming back to reveal himself to you as your father who loves you and say, you've been my child and you belong with me. So hold on just a little longer, guys. Stay true to your Savior just a little longer. He's coming soon. Compared to, compared to the eternity with God that awaits us, however long it is, between now and his return is going to be like a blink of an eye. We can hold on that long. So let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. If you're a child of God, Jesus made you righteous. You are righteous. If you're a child of God, you are holy. Jesus made you holy. So live into that reality. Be like in life what you are in reality. Because when Jesus comes, you will be revealed with him as who you truly are. So he's coming soon. Until then, trust, keep, and honor his words. And that does it for Revelation. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this big book that is challenging, that is beautiful, that we don't always know what to do with. And we just praise you, Lord, that, that you are a God who is bigger than our perspective can see or handle or fully comprehend, but that you reveal enough of yourself to us that we might worship, follow, repent, and believe. So I pray that for every person in here tonight, Lord, that you would give us that gift. You would draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.